from KCRW, I'm Evan Kleiman, and you're listening to Good Food. Are you ready for some football? More like, are you ready for some bar food? Wings, pints, and large screen TVs gathering with like-minded fans to cheer on our favorite team. Well, it's a national pastime. And as sports bars fill up for Super Bowl Sunday, we wanted to reach out to Jenny Wynn. With a modest Kickstarter campaign, she flipped the script on the traditional watering hole dedicated to athletics. The walls of her Portland, Oregon bar are covered in posters of female athletes, flags, scarves, and of course, large screen TVs to watch the game. She joins us to explain why she decided to open the sports bra. Hi, Jenny. Hello, how are you? So when did you conceive of the idea to open a sports bar devoted to female athletes and women's sports? Um, How successful was this Kickstarter campaign that you did? Yeah, so I think that there is kind of a universal experience among women's sports fans uh, where it's always been this very commonplace feeling of not being able to watch women's sports outside of an arena where you purchased a ticket, you know, to go see a live game or outside of, you know, social media or following it on your computer, on your phone. Um, So my friends and I, we constantly would go out to bars and restaurants to go find these games. And it was always an inconvenience, Um, anywhere from an inconvenience to impossible, really. Like there were times where Everybody was there for a big game. It was a men's sports game. And uh, they wouldn't change a channel because everybody was watching something else. But, you know, there was always times where we'd go in and we'd pretty much almost always have to ask um, to have the channel changed. And then not only that, but uh, these spaces uh, have been predominantly made or like seemingly made for men. Oftentimes people can feel underrepresented or not included in the fandom of the space. And so when it actually happened, when the seed for the sports bra was actually planted was back in 2018, when my friends and I, we went to go watch the NCAA women's basketball finals. Uh, We roll into this sports bar and there's probably 32 to 48 TVs in there from small to large. And none of them had the game on. And this is the biggest, to me, I'm a, you know, I'm a huge basketball fan. To me, this is the biggest game of the year. And so we asked if they could change a channel. And they were like, sure, absolutely. And so we all sit down. There's probably a dozen or more of us. And we proceeded to watch what ended up being one of the best games in NCAA history, men's or women's, in my opinion. It was a comeback from behind, a last-second three-pointer to win it. It was marvelous. It was like a magical moment in time. And we looked around, and no one else was watching this game. So here we were, a table of you know, 12, 14 women, just losing it over this incredible game. And, and we were celebrating by ourselves in this space. But as we were leaving, we were all hugging and just talking about how great the game was. And some, one of my friends was like, you know, it would have been better if the sound had been on. And right then, out of frustration, I basically said, oh, the only way we're ever going to have the opportunity to watch women's sports in its full glory is if we had our own place. And the very first name that popped into my mind was the sports bra. And it made a lot of sense because to me at the time, all we would do was change the channel. And so all I would do is take a sports bar and switch two letters around, make it the sports bra. 
And then just a few days later, I thought, oh, and the motto could be, we support women, which I also think is hilarious. <laughs> it is um, hilarious. It's perfect. Hilarious. And that just became like a running joke between my friends and I, something that we would bring up whenever we were frustrated. Because we oftentimes would go out and we'd be like, oh, this game would be on at the sports bra. If there was like a cheerleading competition that we knew was on, you know, a channel, we'd be like, oh, this would definitely be on at the sports bra, you know, or gluten-free buns would be at the sports bra or, you know, the women's restroom would always be filled with toilet paper and clean. What was it that pushed you to go from just having it be a running joke to actually um, create this Kickstarter campaign? What really did it was the pandemic. So in 20, I want to say in 2016, I quit my job as a chef. I didn't really have a plan. Uh, I had been a, I had been a chef cooking and a chef for about 15 years. So it had been my career. And in 2015, I took a trip to Vietnam with my parents, which kind of changed my worldview. And I knew that I needed to do something different, but I wasn't sure what it was. Um, And so I quit my job, no plan. And I actually was semi-unemployed for about five and a half years. And then I went from unemployed to opening the sports bra, which is, you know, I, I wouldn't recommend it. (laughs) <laughs> but it's it's what worked for me. And uh, during that time, the pandemic happened, which really, you know, I know I'm not alone. I'm sure there were millions of people who had the same feeling as me, which was, what am I doing with my life? How am I going to reorganize my world? How can I make a difference? How can I reprioritize what is most important to me? Are you working with a lot of female purveyors and and distillers? Yes. It's interesting. Uh, so like I said, at the very beginning, my, you know, the genesis of the idea was just changing the channel and leaving everything the same. And what happened was when I started to write the business plan, you know, it started to break things down into these fine details. And it occurred to me then that I was like, okay, our motto is we support women. Why don't we try to see if we can just filter everything through that lens? And so when it came to writing the menu or bringing in beer, or, you know, we have four or five wines. Let's see how many women we can support. All the beef that we serve is 100% grass-fed beef out of Wallawa, Oregon, which is Eastern Oregon. And it's from a third-generation rancher. Her name is Corey Carmen. And the beef is top-notch. You know, we have a couple burgers. We have Philly cheesesteak. We have 21 taps. Every single thing on the tap menu is owned, operated, or made with women in the brew house. That's so and, fabulous. Yeah. And then our, on our cocktails, uh, we partnered up with Freeland Spirits, which is a women-owned and operated distillery here in Portland. And it's one of only a handful of distilleries in the country that are like that. And we have it right in our backyard. And then uh, we also partner with Aimsure Distilling, which is just about a four-minute drive from us. And that's a women-owned distillery that focuses more on whiskey. So I'm so curious about who who comes to the to the sports bra. Is it is it um overwhelmingly just women or ha- or have men who are like-minded and enjoy watching women's sports um also come in? Mm-hmm. I would say for the first like month or month and a half, it was a majority of women and hardcore like women's sports fans and athletes. But since then, it is such a diverse group of people, like everyone, everyone, people who don't even like sports come here. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, it's wild. And what was one of the biggest surprises to me opening the sports bra, like, you know, in my business plan, I'd written that 
I felt like my target demographic were women sports fans, and that and there are lots of them. Um, and that was kind of who I thought was going to come through the doors. And what ended up happening after we opened was that the sports bra has really resonated with way more people on all different levels than I ever could have imagined. And so um, that has brought in an extremely diverse group of people, anywhere from like newborns to, you know, 95-year-olds. So, Well, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much, Jenny. <laughs> yeah, it's my pleasure. That's Jenny Wynn, owner and general manager of the Sports Bra in Portland, Oregon, where you can order a pint from a female brewer, tune into a women's soccer match, and know that your burger came from a woman-owned ranch. It's about time. If you told me even two years ago that sports bars would be having a moment in 2023, I would not have believed you. But have you seen the traffic around the old Happy Foot, Sad Foot parking lot in Silver Lake? Just a couple miles down from Dodger Stadium, Pija Palace, which replaced the Sunset Foot Clinic last year, features traditional sports bar fare, but with an Indian and Italian bent. Think Dosa onion rings, Kashmiri red chili and garam masala wings, and Sag pizza. Pija Palace was named 2022's Restaurant of the Year by Eater LA, and restaurateur Avish Naran joins us for this week's In the Weeds. Hi, my name is Avish Naran, and I am the owner of Pija Palace. I grew up right in the middle of Los Angeles, where there, we were surrounded by Little Tokyo and Chinatown and Thai Town and Alvera Street. And like growing up, we would, I'd eat out often. Not not fine dining per se, but we have just such a strong ethnic community here that I was always eating good food. And I think I just grew up just eating quality meals. And that's how I started um, getting into food. My parents definitely had career aspirations for me. I don't think it's any Indian parents' dream for them to chase a, a life of food or owning and operating a restaurant. I'm sure they much rather prefer I was a doctor or an attorney, but after the point when I started to take this more seriously, um, I started to stage at Pacific Dining Car, which is now closed, but I love that restaurant. And through there, I, I really got um, to learn my chops just as a prep cook and then went to culinary school after that. I was a big fan of sports bars growing up. A lot of family time and a lot of time with my friends all revolved around sports bars. It's just like such a fun time. Like the food's unassuming and like nobody's like writing like Yelp reviews. I mean, they're they're writing them about Pizza Palace, but I was hoping that like it would be more of a place where people would come in and like not really think, not really like get into like all that fuss, watch the game. Um, but yeah, I was a huge sports bar fan. Even when my team is losing, like I've never left a sports bar. Like, why did I come here tonight? I appreciate that everybody's coming to Pizza Palace and they, they enjoy it and that we've gotten all this press, but I, I never intended on uh, doing it better. I just wanted to do it my way. So Pizza Palace physically is kind of the anti-sports bar. The things that I didn't like about sports bars or most of them is that they're kind of dark, dingy, like super loud. Um, the floors are kind of sticky, like a little dive bar-y. So, so Pizza Palace, I kind of wanted it to have a little bit more of a feminine touch. We have light woods all over the place. 
there's a lot of things from my youth that I brought into the restaurant that I loved. I love soda fountains. So we've got a vintage one restored and put into the restaurant. Um, the men's and women's restrooms kind of feel like a like an elementary school restroom. Lots of TVs. You should be able to watch your game from any angle. It's a cozy sports bar. We're in the middle of Silver Lake. It's not like we have like Buffalo Wild Wings type of real estate. Like this isn't 5,000 square feet. We have 80 small seats. Yeah, it's just like a really, really small neighborhood sports bar. So the food at Pizza Palace is a mix of Italian-American and sports fair with an Indian twist. I designed the menu based on things that I was eating growing up, along with stuff that I just thought would work well and things that I thought would work well for the neighborhood and just sports bar food. I wasn't the first person to kind of like go down the pathway of mixing Indian and Italian food. This is something that's obviously been done in the Bay with Zante's and Julio's and Cerritos is another Indian pizza parlor. So I learned from seeing, and then I also just learned from growing up. My aunts and then also like the community around me were always doing things like making like Indian stuffed shells and like different kinds of like Indian pastas that, that aren't typically seen in Indian restaurants, but like they were born in America. If you're going to the grocery store and see like some Barilla shells and like you got a pantry full of ingre- Indian ingredients, like this is what you get. That's how like some of the ideas started to form around me. In the restaurant, we apply them the same way. For instance, our tandoori spaghetti dish, we don't have a tandoor, but we, we try to emulate the flavors of a tandoor by taking a lot of smoked chilies and like burning a lime and like getting some charred lime in there. And uh, we use ghee and it, it really sh- should just feel like a pasta that feels tandoori. The pizza program at PG Palace is an interesting one. Everybody's got their own favorite, even amongst the staff. My favorite right now is the Muckney Bunnier Stinger Chilies. I eat that one quite often. We do our pizza in the style of New Jersey tavern bar style pizzas. So super flat, super thin, cooked on a baking steel, really crispy edges. The sauce and the toppings go all the way to the edge. So there's no like definable crust on the pizza sometimes. You know, it's a sports bar, you gotta have wings. We do three different wings here. They all come with tandoori style marinades. All of those wings come with either our curry leaf ranch or our yogurt stilton. Miles and I both have British roots, so uh, we throw a little bit of uh, English bits in there when we can. Right now it's uh, the middle of the basketball season, so we've been playing that, and it's also the close of the football season, so that's what's on now, but we play a little bit of everything when baseball season's on, that's popping. I'm getting educated. I wasn't really a huge tennis fan coming into opening up Pizza Palace, just didn't grow up around it, but I've never seen Pizza Palace as crazy as when like Serena Williams was playing um, her match. Like it was insane. I was like, I didn't even know that there was this many tennis folks in LA. But yeah, um, we'll, we'll play anything. If, if, if there's something you want to watch, even if it's like some obscure like lacrosse match and I can get the package, I'll, I'll happily get the package and then we'll watch lacrosse. I don't know that I ever imagined 
us getting to this point when I opened the restaurant. Cause like I was green, Miles is green. Nobody really knew who we were. Nobody wrote any articles about us. Nobody cared about what we were doing. When all these like press articles started coming, when people started traveling from Orange County and Thousand Oaks and the Valley and stuff, it blew my mind. I appreciate it. Cause like we're in the parking lot of Comfort Inn. It's pretty insane to think that people would travel that long of a distance to come and eat and watch a game. like. It's not like we're Vespertine or something, you know? That's restaurateur Avish Naran. He's behind Pija Palace in Silver Lake. They're completely booked for Super Bowl Sunday. But when you do go, try the Malai Rigatoni and the Adosa Onion Rings, my favorites. Here's a new way to drink responsibly. Support Black-owned craft brewers when you pick up your next six-pack. We've got the details when Good Food returns. Welcome back to Good Food. Responsible philanthropic consumption. I'm all for it. So while you're thinking about what to pair with your wings and things on Super Bowl Sunday, consider Curate, a Pilsner collaboration between two brewing companies, Maine-based Allagash and Inglewood Brewery, Crowns and Hops. Benny Ashburn and Tio Hunter co-founded Crowns and Hops and have more on how you can help while drinking. Hi, two of you. It's so good to have you back. Hello. Thank you for having us back. So good to be on the line with you again and uh, in the KCRW family. Let's start with a statistic. How many breweries are Black-owned? Out of roughly 9,000-plus breweries in the U.S. now, um, less than 60 are Black-owned. And this stat has been pretty consistent um, over the course of the past five years, ever since Benny and I have really been involved in trying to instigate diversity, inclusion, and ultimately racial equity in craft beer. Let's talk about the collaboration first. Give us a little background on how it came about with Allagash. Sure. Well, our friends at Allagash are just that, our friends. I actually developed a relationship with Rob Todd, um, the owner of Allagash, about two years ago um, in the middle of the pandemic, or actually in, in, in the heat of it. We, we met on a, on, a, on a panel that we were both sitting on, and he heard about our 8 Trill initiative, which is the nonprofit Benny and I started, and really was just curious about what we were doing in space and, and actively over the past few years has just been looking for ways to contribute. And ultimately, um, it culminated in us doing a collaboration beer uh, called Curate, which blends their beer, Curio, uh, which is a barrel-aged triple, with our 8 Trill Pills Pilsner. And we came up with a name that joins both of the recipes, Curate. Oh, that sounds so delicious. Give me some tasting notes and some information about the alcohol content, et cetera. Of course. Um, well, we like to consider it a uh, deliciously curious beer. Um, so if you're looking for something that's not as heavy as a Belgian triple, a, a Belgian barrel-aged triple, uh, but something that's light and crisp, um, you found the perfect beer. Um, we, were, we were able to combine both of these recipes and uh, brew it and blend it at a 6.5% ABV. So it's going to be on par with many of the IPAs out in the market. But it's really for something I, I think that, that really, um, I think people have always been inspired by in craft beer, which is the creativity. And I think creativity with a phenomenal cause is something that we've accomplished here. 
Benny, could you tell us about the Eight Trill Initiative that you co-founded? I understand proceeds from the the sale of this collab are going to the development fund. Yes, that is that is correct. The Atrial Initiative, which was launched in 2020, is a 501c3 nonprofit focusing on taking actionable steps to provide capital resources and opportunities for Black-owned beer brands, which ultimately can eliminate some of the barriers that many Black-owned entrepreneurs in craft beer uh, have when starting their own business. And the proceeds from Curate will go to our 8-Trill Fund, which provides uh, capital to Black-owned craft beers specifically to help them build sustainable uh, businesses in the industry. And tell us, why don't you break down some of the um, impediments that you're trying to help other Black breweries overcome? Absolutely. So we like to consider ourselves a case study inside of the craft beer industry as we ourselves are continuing to build our Crowns and Hops brand. And we um, personally overcome a lot of obstacles as it relates to raising money and or uh, partnerships in the brewing space or getting ingredients or marketing or even, you know, something as simple as legal. They're so many different verticals that you need to master to have a successful business. And our hope is that Atrial Initiative provides those resources and tools to make it a little bit easier to navigate successfully inside of the craft beer industry as a Black-owned brand. Do you have an achievable goal set for amplifying Black voices in the industry? Right now, we are focused on one very specific goal, and that's the goal of accomplishing 13% Black-owned brewing companies in our country. Um, That number is representative of the amount of Black people that are currently in America, and we feel that in order to accomplish racial equity, one, we have to have a goal. Um, We've been using the term less than 1% of the industry for way too long, and I think having that goal... Um, which is audacious. It's, it's a big number. You know, it's over a thousand breweries. Whether we'll see it in our lifetime, you know, it probably won't happen. But if we can instigate that change and we can create a roadmap and a case study so that those who see it and witness it and enjoy it can, can follow in our footsteps and, and, and push and evolve this, this goal, um, I think we've, we've done our, our job. We last spoke in 2021. Have you seen the industry change at all since then in terms of racial equity? I think we've seen a lot of willingness to change. We have friends in industry, Marcus Baskerville, who created the Black is Beautiful collaboration effort. Um, We have a lot of of friends throughout the industry have done um, similar um, initiatives. But what was and what has been missing, in our opinion, is something that is consistent, something that has the continuity and metrics that allow for people to understand the impact of their efforts. And that's what we're looking to build with the 8-Trill initiative. How can we get our hands on this collaboration? Where is it available? Curate is available in um, New York, Atlanta, in California, of course, in Portland, Maine, where Allagash is home and at the Allagash Brewery as well. We're really excited about this collaboration. It's the first of our 8 Trillion Allies collaboration series, which um, partners some of these big breweries with Black-owned breweries to create equitable partnership opportunities. 
Are there particular bottle shops here in L.A. where you know we'll be able to get our hands on it? Um, I think there's quite a few. Um, of course, you have Hank's Mini Market um, in Hyde Park, just outside of Inglewood. Um, you have Hilo. Um, you have Father's Office that'll have it on tap on in all of their locations. Um, there's going to be several opportunities, but the Allegash website uh, should have a store locator that you can go in, put in your zip code, and it should allow you to find exactly where it's available. And enough can't be said about what Allegash is doing from participating in this, because it's not just the beer in the capital, but also sharing best practices and, and ultimately ways that we can leverage ourselves as Crowns and Hops Brewing Company and help others do the same. How fabulous. Well, thank you so much, you two. Thanks for coming back and sharing this exciting initiative with us. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much for having us. Looking forward to pouring you a pint when you walk through uh, Crown's Inglewood doors uh, coming this fall. Can't wait. That's Benny Ashburn and Teal Hunter, co-founders of Crowns and Hops Brewing Company. They continue to build legacy in their community and awareness of representation in the brewery industry. Check out their collaboration with Allagash Brewing Company. It's called Cure 8. That's C-U-R-8. Cheers, but for lesbians, is how Emily Billigus describes Ruby Fruit, the wine bar that she plans to open this month with Mara Herb Kurzman in the recently closed Azette space. Statistics from the Lesbian Bar Project cite that there are fewer than two dozen bars in the U.S. that serve a primarily lesbian clientele, and that's down from over 200 in the 1980s. Emily and Mara are here to discuss honoring history and their plans for the space. Hi, both of you. Hi, Hi. Evan. <laughs> Ruby Fruit is taking over the Azette space on Sunset. What was each of your relationship to that concept? Mara, take it away. Um, I helped open Azette in 2019 with owners Sabrina and Spencer Bazaar, and um, I was the general manager and wine director. And Emily, did you have a relationship? I did. I worked as a server and a bartender at Azette since October of 2021. So did the two of you just step in when you knew that they were trying to make a decision about what to do? I wish it were that simple. Um, <laughs> Sabrina and Spencer had brought the idea of Azette closing um, at the very end of this last year. And there were lots of conversations surrounding what that might look like and what might happen. Um, Emily and I had been sort of daydreaming about opening a sapphic space. And the pieces sort of, you know, started to come together that Azette would be the right space for us to do that. So the name Ruby Fruit is an homage. What's the source? Um, the ruby fruit takes its name from Rita Mae Brown's novel celebrating lesbianism and queer identity in general, The Ruby Fruit Jungle. I understand that this is the first lesbian bar in the city since the Oxwood Inn closed in 2017. And given the... Um, 
the fact that there's so few now remaining in the U.S. Um, is that accurate, that it's the first since Oxwood Inn closed? So to our knowledge, this will be the first explicitly sapphic space in the city. There are many very successful, very well-attended, very fun lesbian parties all around town. But to our knowledge, there is yet to be a space that's consistently and explicitly for lesbians and those who are members of the gender-expansive community. Can you talk about the importance for the two of you of honoring the history and the lineage? Yeah, for sure. Um, As a lesbian myself, I am always seeking out sapphic spaces. I'm always seeking out queer spaces. And as those spaces across the country dwindle, um, and, and really I've been thinking about this for a long time, wanting to open a lesbian bar because every community, I think, needs the opportunity to have a place where they know they can go and find other members of their community. Humans are social beings, and we need to know that there's a space where we can go and we can find people who share our interests, who share aspects of our culture, um, who know the same in-jokes, the same cultural references, the same music, the same art, to whom the same kinds of books and movies stood out to them as young people. Um, I think that's what helps keep communities and members of those communities healthy. And I have always known that it's important to maintain a space like this for members of the lesbian community. And what can we expect from the the kitchen and, and the grill? and also from the wine program. So we are very lucky to hang on to some of the really amazing foundations that, you know, Azette laid, um, one of which is the Mibrasa. It's a charcoal oven. Um, So you can definitely expect lots of delicious vegetables and things coming from the oven. Um, We are also retaining all of the staff that is interested in staying on with us. And one of those major gifts is Juliana Sarto. And she was the sous chef at Azette. And she's going to carry on as the sous chef with the ruby fruit. And Jules has, I mean, just really this incredible understanding of the oven. So I'm really looking forward to collaborating with her um, cooking in the kitchen. And, and tell us about the alcohol side. So um, Emily and I will be working together on the wine program. I previously ran the wine program at Azette, and we will be carrying on with a focus on natural wines, small producers, um, female producers when we can find them, and sticking with um, very much, you know, similar approach to that wine list. You did some pop-ups at Izette nights that you dubbed Lizette. The October invitation included an Indigo Girls sing-along, <laughs> U-Haul speed dating, oysters and live painting, and November's concept was Western-themed. 
Are you planning um, to continue theme nights beyond food and wine? We are. We are. We're really looking forward to continuing the program um, at the Ruby Fruit. We've had so much fun at Azette, and it's been this, like, despite its small footprint, it actually is a really wonderful space for events. Um, There's a center island bar that is perfect for kind of bringing people together. It's really nice to host wine tastings. Um, So there will absolutely be more program going on at the Ruby Fruit. Well, we all wish you good luck, and it'll be great to see um, what Ruby Fruit becomes. Thank you. Thank you. We're so excited. We're really excited. Thank you. That's Mara Herb Kurvesman and Emily Billigus, the women behind Ruby Fruit, LA's newest wine bar. Their soft open is the weekend of February 17th. love story when good food continues. It involves cats, comics, and lots and lots of bowls of kimchi stew. Stay with us. You're listening to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleinman. When we open most cookbooks, we see aspirational photos of dishes that promise ease or health or deliciousness or maybe all three. But rarely do we get a glimpse of what's beyond the plate? There are no photos of somebody washing dishes or snapshots of the food coma that ensues after eating or the decision to get ice cream despite said food coma, which is why I was so immediately charmed by Sung Yoon Choi and Eric Watkins' book, Korean American Cooking Comics, part cookbook, part comic book, and all love story. It documents both the meals and the mundane domestic moments that mark Choi and Eric's relationship. Hi, both of you. Hi. Hello. Your new book, Korean American Cooking Comics, is a collection of zines, which you began producing in 2014. Each zine has both illustrated recipes alongside a comic about your domestic life. How did this iteration of your collaboration start? Did it begin with drawing or did it begin with cooking? It started with drawing. Well, Eric was there when I started doing doodles in the kitchen And then I was asking him, like, oh, like, maybe you should help me write the story part. And then it was more of, like, Eric taking over, like, our daily life story. And he was putting together in a script. And then it was slowly um, forming into a nice illustration and comics flow layout. So it, it it was a nice collaboration. How did you meet each other? We met at work. Uh, we were both working at an advertising agency at the time in the storyboard department. So that's perfect. It's storyboarding. I mean, that's basically what yeah. you've done with your life. Right. Yes. Yeah, pretty much. So what is the division of labor when it comes to the cooking? So Choi, you're drawing. Eric, you're, you're doing the words. <laughs> Who cooks? So I pretty much cook one meal a day. Because like we're busy at work separately, and then like that is the time when like we have our meal of the day, so that is the one like kind of dominate. But I don't want to dominate. Eric does help out with the savory quiches from time to time. 
Choi totally dominates. <laughs> do you remember the first dish Choi cooked for you? I do. It was a whole, like, seven-course meal. It actually wasn't in the books. We were living in Brooklyn at the time, and we went to a park, we went to McCarran Park, close to where sh- the apartment was, and she had made this beautiful kind of lunch spread of, like, everything, all the banchan, all the like different little dishes that we normally eat. Uh, but there was like bagolgi, but there was spicy pork. There was kind of everything like laid out. And it was like a huge spread of food. I never forget that one. Because then I was like, oh, this is what I'm in for? I, I like this. I can do with this. <laughs> <laughs> I, I get the impression that kimchi stew is a major comfort food for both of you. Can you yes. um, describe what the ingredients are and and how to make it? Oh, my favorite kind is the one with um, pork belly. I know there's a lot of people who likes putting spam in it, but my, I grew up with the pork belly version of it. So it has kimchi, pork belly, garlic, and tofu, and uh, some scallion, and like that's pretty much it. It's it's very simple. <laughs> And and I love that your bulgogi calls for the Trader Joe's shaved meat. Oh, yes. Because in New York, I think that was the most affordable one that I can find. And uh, it worked perfectly when I was making bulgogi. And now you can find the bulgogi there, but the pre-marinated version. And I like adding veggies and a little bit more uh, seasoning into it. I, I want to give people a sense of how you illustrate the recipes because, you know, as I was reading through the book, I thought to myself that the way these recipes are drawn, there is a greater chance that I will actually make them because cooking itself is such a visual process. And to see the recipe itself in this more visual format is just amazingly effective. At the bottom part of the image mm-hmm. is whatever the vessel is that you're going to be cooking in. Mm-hmm. And and then you have like with the bulgogi, it's the, it's the meat. And then kind of like a halo from the left to the right, mm-hmm. you have an illustration of each of the ingredients with the amounts, with little notes as to how they're going to go in the pan. So... The way I illustrate is pretty much how I plan out the meal. I don't know if I'm, uh, if anybody else does it. Like when I wake up in the morning, I do think about what I want to eat for dinner. And then I do bother Eric a lot of like, hey, what do you want to eat later? <laughs> as soon as I wake up and he's like, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not thinking about it. Like, oh, yeah, that's fair. But I do bother him a lot. Like while we're eating breakfast or while we're eating lunch, like, what do you want to eat later? So in my brain, I'm thinking about different dishes. And then, so like here, for instance, in bulgogi, like, okay, today's bulgogi, if I have any extra ingredients, I'm trying to incorporate that in there. And then like in my head, like all the ingredients pop up. Like um, if I'm explaining bulgogi to somebody who never had it before, like it's a great example for to explain like, oh, this these are the ingredients, so you don't have to be too scared of what's going in. And then they they can just have everything in front of them and then do what they like to do, like when they're cooking. But the comics are this other part. So every page has a recipe mm-hmm. and then across from it, 
a comic about daily life. For example, we see Eric washing the dishes or Eric choosing not to wash the dishes, (laughs) different cats that you've had feature in. There's something just super familiar and cozy about them. Um, Eric, would you pick one of the stories and share why you decided to turn it into a comic? Sure. You know, I'll I'll probably do the most recent book that we did was uh, Everyday Soul. It's the story at at the very end. And I had always wanted to do a story about the time that Sung Yoon and I went to Korea for me to, to ask for permission uh, to marry Sung Yoon. So all of the stories kind of correspond with um, the meals that were going on throughout the different points of the journey and all the things that kind of went sideways with me having to ask and then my mother-in-law and father-in-law not knowing anything of what I asked them because I was so nervous. I had like blurted everything out in one shot and they were like, what did he say? So that one in particular is like one of my favorites just because it's a recent memory. And also it was very much something that happened between the two of us and, and the food element of it was always like corresponding with like an event that was going on during that trip. So what it, what is the plan to go forward from here? Are you going to continue doing zines? It seemed like um, that is a part of our life. Like it does have a therapeutic role to our lives. And um, it was really important for us like going to Zine Fest when we, after we made the book. Um, we always had like great feedback. We saw people actually reading the book in front of us. And being an artist and a writer, it could get very lonely a lot of times. And um, going to those um, events and festivals and seeing people and getting direct response was very valuable for us. It really made us very happy when we saw the connection. So I think we will be making more zines and then we will be appearing to those festivals a lot. They're so charming, and it's such a beautiful way to kind of journal your life's journey together. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. That was Sung Yoon Choi and Eric Watkins. Together, they're behind Korean American Cooking Comics, a new 160-page volume that brings together seven of their zines in one book. We have links on our website at kcrw.com slash goodfood. Up next, Candy Pants. The true story of edible underwear is on deck. Really, you don't want to miss this one. I'm Evan Kleiman, and this is Good Food. In radio, we often talk about driveway moments. You know, when you've reached your destination, but you sit there in your parked car with the radio on because you can't turn it off until you finish the story. Well, I've listened to this next segment probably 15 times over the last eight years, and every time I have a driveway moment, it's that good. Producer Gideon Brower has a knack for the oddball food story. He's reported from a fancy chicken show, visited a restaurant where the food was served in miniature toilet bowls, and he was the one who told me that Smart and Final was actually started by two men whose last names were Smart and Final. I still can't get over that one. But his masterpiece, in my opinion, 
is candy pants. The true history of edible underwear, and it's become somewhat of a good food tradition to air it every year before Valentine's Day. So without further ado, here's Gideon. One thing to know about edible underwear, those candy briefs you might buy as a gag gift that you can wear and also eat, they were never originally meant to be eaten, and they were never originally meant to be worn. We approached it as conceptual art and as a sexual parody. It ended up being just this gargantuan behemoth. It kind of got out of control. Lee Brady and David Sanderson are the guys who invented edible underwear. They're also a couple. They've been together since 1967. You'd expect something like edible underwear to have an unusual backstory. But the history here is way stranger than you'd imagine. Here are a few of the elements. Children's theater, cutting-edge food science, disco, Tokyo Rose, a suitcase stuffed with cash. This all starts in the early 70s. David and Lee and some friends were sitting around a big, run-down Victorian house they were renting in Chicago's Old Town neighborhood. And this will not shock you, they were a little high. We, we were sitting around smoking. Drinking any green spring wine, apple flavor. We were talking about colloquialisms, you know, like, go bananas. Puff the magic jag and just kind of put it in our minds. And I remembered that my older brother used to say to me, eat my shorts. Eat my shorts. Like, buzz off. We were just howling at that. And then David thought, well, why can't you make them? Why isn't there such a thing? Now, I kind of doubt David's older brother was the first person ever to say, eat my shorts. And David and Lee probably weren't the first people to think maybe you could actually do that. But where other people might just laugh about it and then forget it, they didn't. It may have helped that this was the 70s. The early 70s, where almost anything seemed possible. But it also helped that Lee and David are the kind of guys who just try things. In their early 20s, right after they got together, they started a theater company called The Puck Players. The Puck Players. They turned a Nathaniel Hawthorne story into a musical with original songs and a fog machine. They took it to schools, including some in the Chicago ghetto. Some of the fifth graders would be 6'4". They'd, you know, throw things at us and stuff. We had a little white Volkswagen van. The Puck Players. They would always paint over the P and change it to F. That was just one of their adventures. Somehow they got themselves right in the middle of everything that was happening. We went to San Francisco to the Summer of Love and came back to the Chicago riots. They were entrepreneurs. They had tons of businesses. We did a Halloween show for a radio station. We were also selling Tibetan art. We'd rent out rooms, we'd buy vintage clothing and sell it to flashy boutiques. David was also doing a window display. We started having rent parties. You'd pay admission. We'd have punch made out of Kool-Aid and grain alcohol. They really were guys who tried things. And when they said they were making edible underwear, they weren't kidding around. Everybody thought we were totally bonkers. We bought trash bags. We had a friend, Christina. We would pin them on her and get a design that we would cut out and uh, then we would string it with licorice. The early ones were designed exactly like underwear. Tidy whities The licorice was the strings. You'd tie it on each side of your hip in a bow. The men's, we actually put a pouch in it. The design wasn't the only challenge. At the time, there was no product that you could cut like fabric, package, color, flavor, and eat. 
So they had to develop it themselves. We were experimenting in the spare bedroom with a potato starch and hydroxypropylmethylcellulose, which is an edible plastic. It took a while, but they did eventually come up with a product that was both edible and wearable. And they gave it a name. Candy Candy pants. In 1975, when they'd made about a dozen pairs... We had a friend who had a bath shop... He said, you can put them in the front window if you want. Lee and David say, even though they'd gone to all that trouble, they still didn't expect much. But here's where a miracle happened. A marketing miracle, which may be a minor miracle in the scheme of miracles, but still, people spend years desperately trying to get publicity and attention for things they invent. And the way David and Lee tell it, the very first person who bought a pair of candy pants... A girl from the University of Indiana bought the first pair... Her school newspaper wrote about it, and the wire services picked up the story. It went around the world in 24 hours. And then all hell broke loose. I got calls all night long from England, Australia, Canada, Germany, and then NBC called and said, can you be on the 6 o'clock news tomorrow? Who knows why edible underwear struck such a chord? The mid-70s, post-Watergate, post-Vietnam, and the depths of an economic recession, were kind of a grim period. And candy pants were just something silly and fun. Whatever the reason, orders started coming in by the thousands for a product that didn't really exist yet outside of Lee and David's spare bedroom. If you would, please, send us 12 dozen candy pants. And did I mention there were a few quality control problems? It had to have the right humidity and temperature, or it would just dissolve or get brittle and break. But they were can-do guys. So they got a factory. The Willy Wonka factory. Willy Wonka factory. We had giant decals of Mickey Mouse, Minnie Mouse, Pluto, Goofy, plastered all over this gigantic wall. We started hiring people. Everybody wanted to work for us. We were fun. We had parties every Friday night. Lee and David were in the papers. They were on television. Floyd Kramer and Chet Atkins were watching Johnny Carson and they saw him talk about edible underwear. And they'd written a little ditty, and they thought, that's it. Let's call it Candy Pants. It was a wonder product. It appealed to everyone. Young and old, gay and straight, prude and libertine. Everybody loved Candy Pants. I'd like to order 36 dozen Candy Pants, 24 dozen women's, 12 dozen men's. Could you call us back on this and confirm whether you did receive it? We had banana split, cherry, and chocolate. The doomed one. Not a good idea. Uh, (laughs) We came up with passion fruit. We did a mint one, which was green. The U.S. Patent and Trademark Division would not give us a trademark at first because they said the words candy and pants were mutually exclusive, but eventually we did get that. We had a guy come and he he placed an order for a quarter of a million of them. We were like, what? We had a convent that uh, actually awarded them at bingo game motorcycle shops, carried them, nursing homes. Bloomingdale's lingerie shop. Anniversary gift, a birthday gift. Really big for bridal showers, really big. We were selling about $150,000 a month. 
1976. We were making a lot of money. We would spend it as fast as we would make it. You know, you're young. You're going to live forever. Lee and David bought a 7,000-square-foot mansion on Castlewood Terrace with a grand staircase and a ballet studio. They had parties, lots of parties. One thing to remember if you're trying to picture what their lives were like at that time, this was happening. Disco started to get popular. Donna Summer, and then, of course, the disco ball. (laughs) We partied a lot. We were generous, uh, I guess you could say. The 70s was uh, a really unique period. The culture was changing. Gay, straight was starting to meld. We were having a ball. It was just a ball. We weren't foolish, but we we had a good time. David and Lee still had a business to run. And the way they tell it, they were starting to encounter some problems. We would order like 9,000 pounds of flavoring, and all of a sudden we'd get nine pounds. The couple says they were getting squeezed by people who wanted to take over their business and sell candy pants to a different kind of clientele. These men would come in and buy a dozen pair and sell them in their bookstores that sold magazines like Jugs. We kept them out of porno stores. We always thought of it as being innocent and a little naughty. Eventually, they found they couldn't get the raw materials they needed anymore. So they turned to an unlikely ally, Tokyo Rose. Greetings, everybody. This is your number one enemy, your favorite playmate. Iva Tagori, the woman who'd broadcast Japanese propaganda over the radio during World War II, was now running an import-export business in Chicago. Anything from Japanese pebbles to candy. That imported candy was wrapped in a transparent edible film called Oblat. Oblat. Lee and David thought maybe they could make candy pants out of that. She kind of warmed up to us and turned us on to somebody in Japan. So that's where Lee went. A little town that was a paper manufacturing company. I started using their mixers, and all of a sudden, for the first time, they started seeing blue, yellow, green coming off the rollers. And they started calling me magician. You're a magician. Once again, they had a supply of raw materials. We managed to keep it going. But knockoffs of their product were already turning up in porno stores. Lee and David say the stress of maintaining their supply chain was getting to them. They had to make a tough decision. It was nine years that we were... We were running it. They chose to sell the rights to their product to a group they'd rather not talk about much. We were at the lawyer's office, and this, like, cocaine cowboy walked in. He was, like, 6'4 and huge, and he threw a suitcase on the table, and cash just flew out of it. And our lawyer slid under the table, and he was so afraid. The bad news, Lee and David were out of the edible underwear business. The good news, they were rich. We drove around Florida for six months and lived kind of a rock starry kind of life. And then they did what they'd always done, everything. We started up a product called Diamond Jacks. That's a cross between Cracker Jacks and playing the lottery. We had a, a gem in every box. So far, 28,000 boxes of Diamond Jacks have been shipped. Nine diamonds have been found and five are still out there somewhere. We came up with a breath freshener called Mighty Mouth Edible Paper with caramel pens for kids, dolls and toys for kids. I dabbled in doing figurative art for a while. He's in some museums. We've rehabbed five different buildings. Six flat and several homes. Lee Brady and David Sanderson have been together almost 50 years now. It seems like they've done everything and been everywhere. 
But they know if they're remembered for one thing, it'll be candy pants. It's just kind of become bigger than the both of us. I do feel like it's like our, our signature contribution to, I don't know what, um, to conversation, uh, I guess. We're very, very proud of it. It's taken on a life of its own. It just goes on and on and on. Um, we outlived the pet rock. For good food, I'm Gideon Brown. If you missed any of today's show, listen at kcrw.com slash goodfood or on KCRW's mobile app. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. My thanks to the Good Food team, Jillian Ferguson, Laryl Garcia, Elena Shatkin, Desmond Taylor, Nick Lamponi, and PJ Shahamat. And special thanks to Chrissy Vadmeter, Laura Kondorajan, Gary Masiha, and to Gideon Brower, who produced the Candy Pants story for us. I'm Evan Kleiman. Happy Super Bowl and happy Valentine's Day. Whatever you're celebrating this week, I hope you're eating well. I'll be back next week with an all-new episode of Good Food.